The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to netsuite.com slash earnings right now. netsuite.com slash earnings. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Now on Bloomberg 99.1. With divided government, what are the political realities? The president is increasingly frustrated. I want to try to cut through the noise. Politically, this is devastating. Sound on with Kevin Cirilli. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. It is no secret that I care a lot about the consumers. There are real questions about big tech. We still have more leverage to use with the tariffs. I think we could do with a little less drama from the White House. This is Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99. Happy Tuesday, folks. I was at the White House earlier, and President Trump saying that he's still unsure whether or not he's going to get on board with that deal that a bipartisan group of lawmakers came up with last night. Now, it's still significantly less than the $5.7 billion that President Trump wanted to fund his wall. And it really now appears that President Trump is still considering to declare a national emergency. Meanwhile, get ready because Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin and U.S. Trade Representative Bob Lighthizer, they're off to Beijing tomorrow to negotiate a trade deal with China. Joining us in studio, Congressman Denver Riggleman, a Republican from Virginia. He's going to talk all about his conversations with his colleagues and whether or not he wants President Trump to avert another government shutdown. So, folks, I was at the White House earlier today. President Trump had an all-cabinet meeting. Uh, Vice President Mike Pence was there, as well as uh, all of the rest of the folks. And they were asked about the economy, the upcoming trade talks. We're going to get into that later on in the program. But they were also asked about this bipartisan consensus deal that emerged last night on Capitol Hill. Now, what's in this deal? About $1.37 billion to fund 55 miles of a 2,000-mile border uh, along the U.S.-Mexico border. Uh, as well as an additional one-plus billion to aid humanitarian efforts, as well as no reduction in beds. Yesterday we were talking about the beds issue in ICE and how Democrats and progressives have tried in recent years to reduce the number of beds allocated to some of these agencies as a way of decreasing the number of arrests that they are able to – and detainees that, that folks are able to detain for uh, immigrants who are here illegally. So – The bed level stays the same, but this is significantly less money than what President Trump had been calling for, had been asking for. And he was asked point blank uh, by our colleagues, including uh, senior White House reporter Margaret Talib at Today at the White House, whether or not he's going to get on board with this deal. And, well, he said he's got to think about it. But here's here's what else he had to say about whether or not there's going to be another government shutdown come Friday. Take a listen. This one, I would never accept if it happens, but I don't think it's going to happen. But this would be totally on the Democrats. Totally on the Democrats. If the 
if the government shuts down come Friday. Uh, and we still don't know whether or not the president's going to accept that. Congressman Denver Riggleman is a Republican from Virginia. He's joining us uh, on television earlier, and now he's here in studio. Congressman, thank you for being here. I am honored. Thank you for uh, having Honored. Me. Wow. Honored. No one's ever been honored to be here. <laughs> but uh, but, you, but in, in conversations with your, with your colleagues, Congressman, do you think the president should accept this deal? Well, it, what, you know, in the conversation, like we uh, said on, on television, we haven't even seen the final words of that yet, and we know he's doing a markup. I don't think he's going to accept the deal as written. I think he's going to push something back to them. I do know there's a lot of pressure uh, from certain people, as we talked about before, on the Republican side who want him to take this deal. Um, in my district, you know, it's, it's a bit difficult uh, based on our local issues we have with drug overdoses and the amount of opioids and narcotics in our district. We need, we need strong border security. I just don't think border security is controversial. Uh, but I, I think it's going to be interesting today. I hope we get a final cut of the bill before midnight. It would be nice to see it. Uh, but I, I think it's going to be difficult for him to take the, the bill as it's defined specifically right now. What I've seen, I just haven't seen the real You're language a, yet. This is your first term in office. You have, it is. You served in the Air Force uh, as well as in the intelligence community. But it, it's got to be kind of weird. I mean, what you just said kind of made me think, like, it, it must be kind of odd to, to not be able to see a bill and then have to vote on it. Well, that's why I have a great staff, but that's why uh, we've been asking for this. The multiple meetings we had today with my colleagues – we're saying, okay, what is the exact language we're voting on? We'd like to see this bipartisan agreement that we haven't seen yet. So we're just getting flow down information. And that's not unique, unfortunately, uh, to, to Washington that folks get the bill last minute. But l- let me stick to the, to the shutdown issue. Sure. This is significantly, no matter what, any which way you crunch the numbers, this is significantly less than what President Trump wants. Could he accept this deal and declare a national emergency. Surely he could. And Do you think he should? I would rather see a congressional solution. Uh, it's just it's it's part of my DNA uh, and where I come from on chain of command and constitutionality. But you know there are different pots of money where you might not need a national emergency. So I'm not trying to again give any uh, too much false hope. But just like in the federal acquisition space, there are pots of money that you can actually say MILCON, military construction, yeah. that you can dedicate without declaring a national emergency. And and there's actually sometimes there's overflow funds or funds that haven't been expended. It's what I've done as a CEO. You yeah. know? So, so you always have these flow through monies that can be utilized for specific types of security activities. So right now, there are other ways to do this without a national emergency. And that's why I'm waiting to see what pot of money are they going to use if they do if we do ratify the $1.37 billion, are there extra monies on different lines that we can, we can identify and utilize? And I will tell you there are. Um, this isn't something that's controversial. Like I said, border security isn't controversial, but redirecting funds based on lines that have already been approved through law is not controversial either. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how the Democrats react if he chooses to do that. Congressman Denver Riggleman is our guest. He joins us in studio, a Republican from Virginia, also a member of the House Financial Services Committee. Congressman, respectfully, I would say many Democrats would disagree with your assertion that the wall or seal slats or a smart wall, what are we calling it now? But they a physical would, barrier. A physical barrier. <laughs> a see-through physical barrier. <laughs> a, see-through, a big, beautiful see-through physical barrier, build I these, think. Is. The build, the see-through physical barrier. <laughs> many Democrats would argue that this issue is uh, somewhat controversial. Your district is larger than, geographically speaking, larger than the state of New Jersey. That's correct. And you uh, and your wife, uh, your high school sweetheart, uh, you own a distillery. We do. And that business is very much impacted by the president's trade policies, no? 
Yes, it is. So what are you as a businessman and also in hearing from your constituents when President Trump is sending over Secretary Mnuchin and Representative Lighthizer over to Beijing? What do you want them to tell the Chinese? I, I think at this point, looking at where their Chinese is, they said, hey, we love free trade, but we need free and fair trade. Uh, it's time to even the playing field. And I think that's happening. Uh, like I, we were talking earlier, I took an incredible brief last night about the Chinese economy and where they're at. I am cautiously optimistic uh, that we are going to get a trade deal with China. And I think I think President Trump is going to allow the uh, deadline to pass. Uh, I think this is going to happen. Uh, we were looking at some of the statistics. Uh, when you look at a 12 percent decline in car sales over the last quarter in China, that's a huge indicator. We also know that that 6 percent plus growth probably wasn't accurate. So I think what I would say as a constituent is like, listen. I love the fact that uh, – let's just talk distilleries. Let's talk small business. Yeah. I love the fact that you uh, that you uh, hey, lessen the FET, right, the federal excise tax, save me 10000 per month. That's really – I was able to hire 15, 10, 15 more people because of the specific, you know, the, the jobs cut – or the tax cuts act. Uh, so that's great. But the thing is we can't have something on the other side, right, where trade is starting to hurt us, whether we're talking about metal and hurting my constituents and, and say, in tobacco or in soybeans. So it's a really interesting thing that, the, that we have – we have this incredible sort of growth going on in my district, but on the agricultural side, there's a lot of a lot of nervousness, and people are afraid to invest. That's why you have to have good trade policy so people actually can plan, good business people can plan. So I would, I would say this. Go over there and get us a trade deal. Um, ensure that it's free and fair, but we have to at some point. We have to have a solution to this, and I think my constituents are ready for that solution. All right, coming up, we ask uh, Congressman Riggleman about – how exactly Republicans are trying to shift momentum in terms of the ongoing U.S.-China trade negotiations. Plus, plus, we dive more into the response today from President Trump on Congresswoman Omar. That's coming up. Remember, you can download the Sound On podcast on iTunes at Bloomberg.com or by downloading the Bloomberg Business app. And you can also find us on Radio.com and on iHeartRadio. I'm Kevin Cirilli. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. This is Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2 Baltimore. Welcome back, folks. We're joined by Congressman Denver Riggleman, a Republican from Virginia. We were talking about how President Trump now has to decide whether or not to get on board with this bipartisan group of lawmakers up on Capitol Hill who came up with this a deal, uh, essentially, to keep the government open, keep the government funded. And the congressman was telling us, well, most lawmakers haven't even seen the exact precise wordage of this bill or deal, as they're calling it. But it is significantly less than the amount of money that President Trump had called for. It's not even half of the money that President Trump had called for, for the wall or enhanced fencing, smart fencing, smart wall, a barrier. Uh, and they have until Friday to decide if they're going to work out this particular deal. Democrats holding strong on this. Uh, President Trump not playing his cards yet. Uh, he, he had an all-cabinet meeting earlier today, didn't say one way or the other where he feels about this, and, and is trying to decide if this is the most money he can get from Congress, how might he be able to get some more cash for this wall through other mechanisms in legislation. Another big story that we are following, of course, is the U.S. delegation heading over to Beijing to continue negotiating with the Chinese on this trade agreement ahead of that March 1st deadline, that March 1st deadline where President Trump has said he will raise tariffs uh, on a host of about $267 billion worth of Chinese imports coming into the U.S. 
Business community doesn't want that here, folks. Uh, business lobby actually out in full force last week and this week, uh, urging President Trump, urging lawmakers to to reverse course. Congressman, are you are, are your uh, are your colleagues urging the president not? to increase tariffs on that March 1st deadline. Yeah, I mean, for most that I've talked to, you know, they're they're looking forward to getting this thing done. So I think the, there is some pressure from the Republican delegation. You have a lot of people who are affected by this. And, and Republicans have a lot of agricultural districts. We have a lot of rural areas. So you're seeing that. And for me, you know, even talking to farmers, as we talked before, not only do I have tobacco, not only do I have timber, but I have dairy, yeah. right, I have beef. Um, it is a massive agricultural district. So my, my challenge really is, yes, I, I want free and fair trade, but I am getting pressure. And, and I agree with them. I'm getting pressure that enough of this, uh, let's move on and let's get a deal in place. So what's interesting about the, the U.S.-China trade issue is that from a populist standpoint, both on the left and the right, there there is a lot of pressure. I mean, the U.S. wants to – a lot of folks want to get some type of better deal or they feel that China has unfairly uh, skirted uh, the U.S. On, on various economic platforms, most notably intellectual property. Yeah, I mean, for me, you know, I got to negotiate with uh, Romanian intelligence on the Romanian-Serbian border in 1999. And this and we, is when you were in the Air Force? This is when I was Air Force Intelligence. And it's almost, uh, you know, you almost have this negotiating tactic like you can't give, you can't give, you can't give because they keep saying, you know, I'm going back to my bosses. You know, that's that's pretty much what they said over and over again. I think you had that going on with China. We have to go back to our bosses. At this point, there, I almost believe that the momentum is towards a deal. Uh, I just I don't see how we can't have one at this time. And, and again, I don't want to be falsely optimistic, uh, but at this at this juncture, I believe there's going to be a deal. Uh, and with you the don't Chinese. think and you don't think President Trump's going to raise those tariffs come March 1st? No, I think if it's going in a positive direction, I don't think he's going to. I, I would hope he wouldn't, but I don't think he's going to. So you were in the Air Force and intelligence officer for how many years? So I was uh, prior enlisted for four. Then they sent me to UVA. Then I was uh, five years as an intelligence officer. Then I went into NSA special projects, did counter ID. Did what does some... that mean? Well, so um... it's like NCIS or something. <laughs> well, like... what we did was uh, we were using big data to try to solve hard terrorism problems. Like what does that mean? So if you can uh, if you can get specific types of data. Uh, and you can put it together. You can actually sort of uh, sort of watch a lot of great things happening in multiple times and in multiple places. So uh, I can't talk too much about yeah, it. Yeah, it sounds like. So, um, <laughs> but uh, really, and I could tell you this. For instance, I did counter IED work with NSA. So we went after roadside bomb makers. Okay. Uh, Counterterrorism mission management, which means that we actually built target folders for special operations. So when you talk about. Uh, surveillance in particular, and then you look at the developments with Huawei, for example, or uh, the, uh, uh, you know, the other Chinese telecommunications firms that are, that are really under the microscope right now. What are you, and you are being a member of the House Financial Services Committee, what do you want to see happen with U.S. and China on that particular front with, with a company like Huawei? Well, Huawei has been... Um uh, you know, uh, I could say unclassified Huawei has been on our radar for a lot longer than a year. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. and 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 less than ten. No, no, it's it's uh, it's <laughs> so it's something that I've been aware of for some time. So it was no surprise to me. Uh, when you have that type, that really is, um, that is really something we need to look out. If we if we have if we have people building foreign components or foreign foreign types of activities that are happening and there's components in what we're building, we have to be extremely careful on how we treat those components. So um, Huawei has has done some things that are pretty bad, and I think we need to actually react to that um, pretty stringently. We have to be disciplined. So you've got this whole military intelligence background, and then you own this distillery out in 
and I would say rural Virginia. I do. Uh, with your with your wife and your three daughters, and you're, you just expanded, right? There's a new distillery open. In the Poconos. In the Poconos, which right. is Pennsylvania, my home state, that Keystone is, State. There you go. But, uh, but it, what's interesting here, though, is then you ran against Olivia Wilde's mom. Yes. To, Leslie Cockburn. Yes. To, so what was, what was that like, Congressman, to have the, the famous actress, Olivia Wilde, come and campaign against you? Oh, it was great. I mean, I mean, you can't get any more fun than that. I mean, it's like a, it's like a party with you know popcorn and streamers. It was awful. And so, I mean, so you know, for me running for the first time, and what I found out though is, if you have those connections, is that, and even you know, and I'm glad somebody from the Hill is here, but I, I think what I found with never running before like this is that somebody could tweet something, it could become national news with no fact checking whatsoever, and actually made up. And even things that I thought were so stupid that people wouldn't believe it, that that somehow become, became national news. So I, it, I didn't think that could actually happen until, you know, theoretically you saw it. So, you know, I found it interesting that we actually we, – we had to do, you know, crisis comms on something that was made up for about three weeks. And what and, was this? See, you're, you're talking about it. You're talking I, I'm about talking Bigfoot. around it. It's, it's, You're talking about Bigfoot. It's Bravo Foxtrot. That's it's, correct. It's, it's so what? <laughs> Julia Manchester from the Hill newspaper also with us in studio watching and listening to all of this. I mean, I – okay, so this Bigfoot scandal erupts, which right. – I mean, tell us what happened. Okay, so in 2004, I pranked my wife. I took her on a Bigfoot expedition on her 15th anniversary. I met your wife at the State of, of the yeah, Union. Yeah, I told her I was going to take her to Hawaii, and we ended up in Seattle. Yeah, she doesn't strike me as someone who would have thought that that was a good – She was salty. Yeah. So okay. – um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So she, she was salty. So you so, pranked your wife on this on, on right. going and, okay. and I'm an intelligence officer, so I was there. I figured I'm like, do these people? So your actually, pranks are probably intense. I'm intense prankster. <laughs> oh yeah, and and people will see that if they saw my Instagram. But anyway, so which uh, I think we had to delete. But anyway, so um, no, what's incredible about it is that my military guys got a hold of it, and then they're like, hey, what are these people like? So I'm an intelligence officer, so I started to do research on what Bigfoot believers are. And uh, for the next eight to nine years, you know, I would just sort of dabble like, you know, there's people who believe that Bigfoot's interstellar being. People believe that he's an interdimensional long jumper on the, you know, that, uh, you know, that he's a 12-strand DNA being that's protecting us in the 264 million world. What do you believe? I can, Bigfoot doesn't exist. Okay. So, uh, so in anyhow, so this was a prank in the military for a long time. And what happened on Instagram, I had a birthday picture. They put my picture, my head on a Bigfoot with a censored area. And I thought that was funny. And that was from an army friend of mine and about three others. I put it up there and all of a sudden I was accused of Bigfoot erotica. Now, listen, I didn't want to alienate any Bigfoot voters. Alienate. Key word there. Thank alienate. you. Yeah, alienate because there are interstellar believers that Bigfoot's an alien. He's, so, I, but I didn't I, want to alienate. <laughs> but, but also we thought it was funny that night. And then, you know, and Jimmy, you know, he called me and said, Denver, this is going to go viral. And I said, it's impossible. Yeah. It's okay. impossible. Okay, but let me, let, me, let me ask this. Sure. Like, so when you're, like, getting vetted to run for Congress, okay, yeah. and, like, of all of the things, you know, it's, I'm Catholic. It's like going to confession, I, I would imagine. Right. Did Bigfoot ever, like, did this, was this something that even you were like, yeah, you know, I could get attacked for that prank I played on my wife with Bigfoot? Well, my, my daughter said, hey, Dad. <laughs> Hold on. She goes, hey, there's this picture on Instagram from your, your army buds. And, you know, this other picture that your other buddy drew for you that you thought was funny for your birthday. Should you take it down? And here's my exact quote. I said, there is nobody dumb enough to think this is anything but a joke. And guess what? I was completely <sighs> wrong. And, and you dumb know, enough since, to believe in Bigfoot. I mean, like, I mean, it's and, just well, like... And, and the thing is, it was so... 
to say that I got a lot of abuse, but we turned it. I mean, because it was so ridiculous. Plus, it turned out they called. They said she couldn't kink shame me, and they called her a speciesist. But anyway, that's what the far left does. So uh, they went nuts. And then what they did got, your daughters think? They thought it was hilarious, and then they were horrified. It was yeah. actually some of the worst two weeks we I went. I mean, your your daughters are adults. I mean, uh, yeah. I mean, was that? I mean, was. I mean, what is that like for a family to go to go through like a brutal viral moment like that? It's it's because I've never been through. I was yeah. always behind the door. You know, when you do Air Force intelligence uh-huh. work, I'm not out. I'm doing things for my country. Uh-huh. Right. And, and here's something where I'm a successful CEO, successful Air Force intelligence officer, have done incredible, th- you know, defended my country, been in harm's way. And we have something completely made up that goes viral. And, and you have to I, I laughed a lot. Um, but also just some of the things that people said, you know, the twidiots out there, the Twitter idiots, um, you know, you have these low IQ mouth breathers that are out there, you know, saying things and it actually becomes news. You almost it's almost hard to get your arms around it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, to be on SNL, to be on Colbert, to be on Fallon, you know, and everybody's saying, oh, this guy's crazy. And I'm like, what do you talk about? This is funny. Right. Yeah. So um, but it, it just, um, you know, I've done incredible things in my life, um, professional. And I think what happens is people get so desperate to win in this yeah. game for power. They'll do anything. So they try to destroy somebody by falsehoods rather than concentrating because she's not going to beat me on the battlefield of ideas. All right. So coming up, we're going to get much more back into policy. We appreciate Congressman Denver Riggleman uh, coming in, talking. At, we talked, we covered a lot of ground there. Huawei to Bigfoot. You know, who would have thought? <laughs> Only on sound. Well, they've chipped Bigfoot. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I'm sure you'll be back and we'll have a lot of fun. We should go out to, to your district. Appreciate you coming in. Uh, remember, you can check us out after the show uh, on a host of different platforms, including on Apple iTunes. Uh, download that podcast on iTunes at Bloomberg.com or the Bloomberg Business app. You can also find us on Radio.com and iHeartRadio. I'm Kevin Cirilli. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. This is Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2 Baltimore. Welcome back, folks. I'm Kevin Cirilli. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. Julia Manchester, reporter at The Hill, and Congressman Denver Riggleman, also Republican from Virginia, is sticking with us for just a little bit longer. Julia, uh, you were on Capitol Hill recently, mm-hmm. and you've been following all of this. So, I mean, is President Trump going to get on board uh, with this deal that bipartisan group of lawmakers have put forth. Now, the deal, of course, is significantly less funding for that border wall. I was at the White House today, and it looks like President Trump is still 
going through whether or not he's going to get on board with this. Yeah, Kevin, really, as of now, it's really unclear where President Trump is going with it. He says he can't be happy. He can't be thrilled about it. And we're actually seeing a number of um, conserv- those in conservative media who is based really listened to her really slamming it. We saw that Ann Coulter called it the yellow New Deal today. But on Capitol Hill, you know, you're seeing a lot of Republicans, you know, almost trying to like push the president in that direction just to um, avoid another go- government shutdown. You know, Mitch McConnell kind of pushing, saying, you know, it's something the president should absolutely consider because we saw that during the shutdown, the president's approval ratings really started to slip. And I think the White House kind of took a gamble on that. So, you know, Trump really has to weigh which direction he's going to go in. Yeah. And, you know, I think the national security and uh, I'm the um, doing a state of emergency is always on the table for him. But see, I- I'm interested in why not i mean for from from my perspective whether you agree with the wall or disagree with the wall the money that's being put forth from this bipartisan group of lawmakers republicans in that group like including senator richard shelby republican from louisiana i mean that he had to have known that this is not enough money for for President Trump. Yeah, absolutely. But I think Republicans realize that on the other side of it all, Nancy Pelosi saying, I won't give $1 for the wall. You know, they have to find some common ground. So I think Republicans, in a way, are thinking, um, you know, such as Richard Shelby, thinking, well, maybe the state of of an emergency could come into play here because Trump has floated that idea in the past. So, you know, they're really in a tough situation right now, but it's hard to say what direction the president will uh, go Julia, in. stay with us. Uh, Congressman Riggleman, uh, you're, still here, you're still with us. It's not just the shutdown. It's not just trade. There actually, folks, is some legislation getting introduced. Uh, and you've got four bills that, you, that you've uh, put forth. I did. In, and the, the, in the few days that the government's been open. In the few days, you know, I, I still wanted to go to work, right, yeah. for the 5th District. But we had a few bills. The one I'm really proud of is, uh, you know, Rural banks have been exiting our district and rural districts across the country. So we're trying to make it easy for people to transact for home, home loans from person to person. To, instead of three, to have five transactions where they don't have to go through the regulatory burden of banking to give those loans. And really, that's really to, to, to identify on manufactured has, housing, to be honest. And I was very happy to put that bill in. Also... I'm not a big fan of uh, regulations without guidelines, right, or without directives. I know. I, <laughs> I know it's tough. Uh, so I put in three bills that dealt with, you know, anti-money laundering. Um, I, what are the guidelines? You know, what are, what are banks actually supposed to do? Uh, what are they inspected to? So if you look at AML, uh, anti-money laundering, uh, you look at these things. Why, what are the banks actually being judged on, and what does the Department of Treasury want, to, want them to do? So let's be a little bit more clear with that. And then I also flipped it. For SARS, like suspicious activity reports, how is the Department of Treasury using those from banks? So what I'm trying to do is get transparency in the Department of Treasury for bankers for a couple reasons. Number one, what are they actually being inspected on? And number two, how are their reports being used in the criminal empire to stop, you know, drug trafficking, sex trafficking, and things like that? So I was very proud of these bills. I know that's a little wonky. No, get wonky. That's what we love um, here on Sound On. Uh, but, uh, you know, the, the, these four bills actually made me pretty happy. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and it really, that's what I said. You know, it's transparency. And, and the last thing is, here's what I want to know. What overseas banks are, are working with sanctioned countries? And that's huge, especially when you get into Europe. Uh, They're financial institutions. Are they doing business with Tehran uh, or are they doing business even with with other uh, factions? Uh, So that so there's sanction enforcement. That's that's huge, especially in the Treasury. Congressman Riggleman, I know you've been so so generous uh, with us with your time coming up. uh, Julia Manchester helps us navigate the growing scandal for Congresswoman Omar. Remember, you can check out 
uh, sounds on podcasts on iTunes at Bloomberg.com or by downloading the Bloomberg Business app. You can also find us on Radio.com and the iHeartRadio app. I'm Kevin Cirilli. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. You're listening to Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2 Baltimore. Welcome back, folks. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Bloomberg News Chief Washington Correspondent. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. Julia Manchester, a reporter for The Hill newspaper, uh, with us to help break down some of the headlines. But, Julia, i got to ask, Congressman Denver Riggleman, now that he's he's not here, what did you think of that Bigfoot story? That Bigfoot story was insane, and it's interesting. (laughs) I remember driving through his district last fall, and I was actually going with a couple of friends going to the wineries. didn't know he had a distillery out there. But, yeah, it's interesting to get his perspective, I think, when you bring in someone as big a name as Olivia Wilde, and they're, you know, pushing all of those stories to get that personal perspective from it. Because we only get in the media and reading this as as observers, we only get one side of it. The clickbait side. The clickbait side. And as a journalist, you know, you obviously – want your work to be covered your organization wants it to be covered you need to make a revenue however your work does impact people whether it's for the good or the bad so i thought it was really thoughtful how he described that yeah and just how like an instagram picture on a prank with your wife which is what happened to Congressman Riggleman, and then it just morphed and went viral to a late-night punchline. Exactly, and I feel like this issue of opposition research, I mean, you know, I'm not in no way comparing him to this, but you've heard, um, you know, with the Ralph Northam, Northam stuff, yeah. you know, how every time you start your campaign, you have to just lay it all out on the table, and it's amazing what the other team's oppo research will dig up, and in this case, it was something as silly as Bigfoot. So you've been following uh, Northam right. uh, quite some bit. What's the latest? In ter- I mean, he's still holding on. He's still holding on. You know, he's, you know, saying he's going to put forth, I mean, I guess initiatives and really push um, for, you know, issues that would support African-American voters in the state. Um, however, this a dynamic between him and Lieutenant Governor Justin Fairfax is really interesting to yeah. me because you're seeing two women now accusing him of sexual misconduct. You know, I don't know how often these two have spoken over the past couple of weeks. I don't believe it is a lot. So as a, you know, I'm not a Virginian, but I would wonder what it's like to be a Virginia voter, a Virginia resident to see, you know, you, the governor's man is completely in peril. But as a, de- you know, for someone who's a Democrat looking at this, these are two issues, racial diversity, um, racial diversity and um, women's rights, pushing back against sexual misconduct that they've really run with over the past um, couple of years, especially with the Me Too movement and, right. you know, trying to contrast themselves with the Trump administration and Republicans. And now they really can't do that. And you're seeing Republicans, you know, take this and run with it in the other direction. Julia Manchin reporter at the Hill newspaper uh, with us helping to break down some of the headlines. Of course, we've been following whether or not President Trump's going to get on board with the group of bipartisan leaders who put forth some type of deal, though it's significantly less money to fund that wall. TikTok, the clock, the clock, TikTok, the clock. I tried to be clever and it just always fails. But the clock is running out. Time is running out. I'll just keep it simple. Uh, The clock. The clock is running out. Friday, they have to pass some type of deal in order to avert another government shutdown. And remember, folks, meanwhile, the other major, major market-moving development story that we are following is Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin heading to Beijing with U.S. Trade Representative Bob Lighthizer. They leave tomorrow. They're going to be there Wednesday and Thursday in Beijing. 
hammering out details to try to get some type of agreement uh, fixed ahead of March 1st when the president has said he's going to increase those tariffs. If that wasn't enough for us, Julia (laughs) Manchester, Congresswoman Ilan Omar, Democrat from Minnesota, freshman, one of the few Muslim Congress people in, in, in Congress, President Trump, or she, she has apologized for an anti-Semitic tweet that she tweeted out the other day uh, 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 about uh, Kevin McCarthy. Uh, essentially, it was an anti-Semitic tweet that I don't even want to say out loud, to be right. honest, uh, about uh, APAC, which, of course, is the uh, an organization here in Washington that lobbies on behalf of, of Israel and, and pro-Israel policies. Well, President Trump was asked about it during that all-cabinet meeting at the White House— And here's what he had to say. She should either resign from Congress or she should certainly resign from the House Foreign Affairs Committee. That was President Trump when asked about his response to Congresswoman Ilan Omar, a Democrat from Minnesota, for her anti-Semitic tweet. Uh, Speaker Pelosi, for her part, is now facing Republican pressure. Is she facing pressure from, from Democrats for to, to remove Congresswoman Omar from the, I mean, it's a pretty big, important committee, House Foreign Affairs. Right. So, you know, not as, I guess, out loud as she is from Republicans, but, you know, moving, looking at this from a more broad perspective, I think this is really an issue that Democrats are really going to have to grapple with, this issue of Israel and U.S. support of Israel. You know, you've seen the majority of Jewish Americans um, vote Democratic. However, there is a growing movement, especially in the progressive wing of the party, to be more critical of Israel, more critical. But you can be critical of Israel and not be anti-Semitic. Absolutely. And and, and I think that, yeah, I mean, I so, and I'm not saying that you're suggesting otherwise. I think what's just so absolutely hard for many people to understand is that is a blatant anti-Semitic tweet. Right. I mean, Chelsea Clinton even said that you have to call out anti-Semitism, referring to that tweet. Congressman Steve King of Iowa was removed from committees following his racist uh, tweets. So, I I mean, it. uh, this is – it's also one thing – to, you can still also support mm-hmm. Israel and be critical of, of Israeli uh, officials. I mean, there's different political factions within the Israeli government. I mean, but this, but this is a this is a difficult, difficult uh, situation for Speaker Pelosi, who, by the way, totally came out against Congresswoman Omar's comments on this. I know, actually, you you, you were telling me this in the break. You interviewed a, a former APAC official. Yeah. Tell me about that. So we spoke to him today on Hill TV, and he essentially said, you you know, he obviously was against this tweet, um, said when asked about whether she should be removed from committee, he'd have to look more into her apology. But, you know, we were talking about this issue of, you know, can you criticize the state of Israel and, you know, it not being taken as anti-Semitic? And we got into the, um, our host got into the conversation about the one state solution and how a lot of people who are associate themselves with the pro-Israel movement would say that, you know, for example, calling for a one-state solution is considered anti-Semitic. And we actually saw that really, um, that whole narrative play out, out with Mark Lamont's Hill speech to the United Nations last November when he called, you know, I believe it's the terminology from river to sea um, for a one-state solution. That basically means, in the um, pro-Israel perspective, that, you know, the, the Israelis are being pushed into the sea. So I think overall, this is an 
an issue that all of us as Americans need to educate ourselves on. Do you think on. this story's over for Congresswoman Omar? Do you think she rides this out, or do you think that this that – this, I don't think it's going away. I don't think it's going away, and I think, you know, she was already a freshman appointed to such a big committee, the Foreign Affairs Committee, and I think with how Steve King and how he was removed from those committees, I don't think um, Republicans are going to let this go. Do you think Speaker – how is Speaker Pelosi going to get past this? You know, I think the committee's assignment is something she's going to really have to think about. She's going to be asked about it. She's going to be asked about it. Um, You know, her caucus is going to get major blowback for this if nothing is done. I just don't see how there isn't some sort of disciplinary action. We've got like a minute left. What's the other story that has been flying under the radar that you think should be Amplified. Oh my gosh. Um, you know, I always say Brexit because I think in oh, the yeah, US yeah, that's we right. need, you're yeah, a Brexit man. I, I know, I know. We all it's a big I think, week for Brexit. Exa- a big week for Brexit. I think as Americans we need to pay attention to this due to trade. Why? Tra- trade? You know, I think it affects us in terms of trade, it affects us in terms of, you know, for, for example, me, I like to go and visit there. But you know, I think British politics is something we should definitely pay attention to due to our partnership with the UK. I agree, much- but I'm biased because you know why? I think American politics right now is the most fascinating political structure in time. I want to thank Julia Manchester, a reporter for The Hill. Sorry, we got to run out. Uh, And remember, download the Sound On podcast on iTunes at Bloomberg.com or downloading the Bloomberg business app. Also check us out on Radio.com and iHeartRadio. Our thanks to our guests. We're tracking the shutdown tomorrow. That's it for me, Kevin Cirilli, Bloomberg 99.1. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Hurd, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.